0: This is Thank You Heartbreak.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott.
0: As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and
1: lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi everyone, this is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 164 with Kate Wiswell. If you're someone that skips intros, go to somewhere around the eight minute mark to get right into the conversation. I have a headache, I'm gonna tell you. I have a headache, possibly from all the revelations that have just been firing off in my head. I'd say a week, but more than just one week. Days and days and days now. And also the wine I've been drinking. Don't judge me, there have been nights now where I drink wine by myself in quarantine. I've never been a drinking by myself kind of gal, but here we are, and one of the revelations I've had while drinking wine is, why is it taken quarantine to reveal to me that life really is made of moments? The simplest moments can feel like moments, so obviously I'm emphasizing moments, Otherwise, when there's not moments, it's just time passing, just time and minutes and hours in your life passing away from you. So I'm talking about doing the dishes now. It's like I'm really just there doing the dishes because nothing else is going on in life. So there's this desire to be only with this. This is all I have. And in order to be okay with it, I have to enjoy it. And I'm really in this enjoyment stage. I'm taking a shower. I've always loved my showers, but now it's like I'm loving them even more. Beyond love, it's just appreciation. I've been appreciating the little, little engagements. And another revelation I've had that kind of piggybacks off of this one is that for me personally, and I understand that a great majority of people, really the majority of people have had their lives turned upside down by this quarantine and they're packed in a home with many people or maybe they're just finally around their roommate all day and they are not used to working from home. And so life feels very different. But if I'm really honest, I don't know why this has anything to do with honesty, but if I'm really honest with myself, life isn't so different right now in quarantine. You guys have heard me talk about that I've isolated myself over the years. Now, I'm not that way anymore, but still, on a regular basis, I mean, my work happens at a desk by myself. So that is what I'm here doing. I'm here at my desk, as I would months before, But months before, I never gave myself maybe permission. I hate being someone that talks about that. Permission, permission, permission. I know it's relatable. I think sometimes I resist what's so relatable and kind of like the buzzwords that you hear. But I never gave myself permission, I suppose, to really honor the choices that I've made. So the choice, which is scary and unstable to not be in an office, has its real drawbacks, by the way. And I've never honored it enough, though, because I felt guilty for choosing this path, being able to choose this path as well. But guilty, God, this has been a big thing in my life. Guilt. Guilt if I have open time. But then I've also been panicked over at the same time or had shame or just many heavy emotions that one would probably say don't serve me because they're just kind of beating me down. And yeah, I just, life before this quarantine that was similar to what has been in quarantine, I never gave myself the permission to experience joy in the day-to-day. Yes, when I would go out and yes, when I would be on set and yes, when I'd be amongst people, I would feel joy. But the daily practice of my work or after my work was through, I never just like turned the music on, turned it up and started dancing. I never was like thinking, oh, someone should come over and we can just stay up late into the night because I can. I never just poured myself a glass of wine and got my buzz on. I I just never have done that. But now in order to keep my morale up, because I am all I have here in quarantine, I've done those things and it's kept me happier than I think a lot of people feel that they are right now. Or it's let me be energized still by an experience that can very much just feel like it's the same thing over and over again every day, it's Groundhog Day. So it's just like realizing, like, God, when this lifts and the world opens back up, who knows what pressures I might be under? Who knows? But if the world were to open up tomorrow, I'd like to keep the promise to myself that I celebrate the choices that I have made more, that I stop battling against myself, that I stop being so critical, and that I start having fun alone or with others, and I take advantage of whatever my life is right now. Maybe that makes sense to you. I'm just gonna get this episode started because God knows, I mean, I'm not talking to anyone, so I could just go on and on and on forever. I liked this episode a lot because Kate is someone that thinks in dualities, if that makes sense. She can come at something from this perspective, but then she also wants to talk about that perspective. A lot of this episode is about the balance, about achieving, striking a balance. And she is someone that shows the and and or. And I think that we can all benefit from this. I want you to listen to it though when we speak about comedy, for example, or when she's talking about improv. The practices of improv, for example, I'm just giving you a heads up, is something that you can relate to your dating life. Real quick, she talks about this practice. One of, I guess it's like the first rule in improv is quote unquote, yes and so if you just say yes you are really stopping the conversation you aren't building on anything and i want you when you hear this to think about yourself in dating and if you sit down with someone let's just say for dinner and they're telling you something and you're just being so agreeable or you're nervous and you're not present or you just want to get your thing out you're just you're not listening you're not actively listening you might just say yes, or you might just let it fall there and then come up with your own question that doesn't even relate. And it stops someone in their tracks. It prevents you from creating a momentum together. But if you say and, you give yourself an opportunity together to build off of what you both, or what that person is sharing, and there becomes a camaraderie, there becomes this shared experience, and you can go deeper. So when we talk about, things that don't have to do with dating in this episode, I want you to still think about how you can apply it to dating. All right, I'll stop giving you instructions and we'll just come together and listen to this episode. So I would love for you to introduce yourself
0: to my audience. Hi, my name is Kate Wiswell and I am a comedy writer and a logic teacher part-time in Los Angeles.
1: A logic teacher in Los Angeles? Does that sound like an oxymoron? (laughs) It does. It just does. I was living there and I can't imagine you introducing yourself to people and them. I I just don't know. It just seemed like you had to be in the quote unquote business to be relevant to anyone there.
0: Oh, yeah, kind of.
1: (laughs) Thank God for your comedy career.
0: Exactly. Logic teaching actually is to keep me sane. (laughs) I was originally a math major and then I became a, an English major and then I went into writing, but that part of my brain still needs exercise.
1: Wait, I did read about that in the book about how you switch majors. Mm-hmm. and yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess like the guilt that was involved in choosing something that you enjoyed more, which you then equated with being an easier path. Do I have that right? Yeah.
0: And also just because it's so much harder to mm-hmm. engage success or skill in something creative, like writing, or even just in the humanities. Because, you know, when you're a math major, and I was applied math with a focus on physics, you know, you're doing problem sets all the time. You're doing proofs. You're in class answering questions. You're either right or you're not. So it's easy to be like, I'm good at this, <laughs> you know.
1: Then it's easy to take Adderall and be like, I'm the best writer there's ever been. And then you wake up, you know, and you're like, later And you realize that it's psychotic. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Right.
1: Like as a writer, I mean, your opinion about it, about yourself can change at any moment.
0: Yeah. Well, one of the most important things that I learned and most people do learn it the hard way like I did is that the phase where you think everything that you've written is terrible or everything that you produce is horrible, that's actually an important step and a sign that you have skill.
1: Mm. Why is that?
0: Well, the people who don't have any skill, they just write something down and they go, that's great. Having critical ability is a sign that you have knowledge and understanding. You recognize good from bad. You know the difference between those things. And of course, we're always harsher to ourselves. Mm -hmm. So your writing always goes through that phase where you're like, oh, I'm terrible. I'm horrible at this. And when you have that feeling, for most of us, we think, all right, I should listen to that and I should give up. But really, when you have that feeling from the outside, you have to know that that's a sign that you have knowledge, you have skill, you have critical ability, and you know how to make it better. So you're actually a writer.
1: You're right about that in the sense that if you know that it's bad that there's something in you that understands what it is to be good yeah hmm. in
0: order to be successful, you have to be able to identify failure basically
1: what is the kind of the most bitter failure you experienced or you you qualified as a failure throughout your life
0: just life in general
1: yeah, not even hmm. dealing with just writing any moment
0: oh my goodness that's a Big question. That's a difficult question, too.
1: Um, what does well, that have to be the biggest? The one that yeah. comes to you?
0: Yeah. I think overall, looking back, especially at college, at all of the times when I had, I just didn't assert myself.
1: Mm-hmm. You
0: know, like I had things to say or I had things that I wanted to make known to take control of certain situations in my social life. And I, I didn't. I just kind of let things happen to me frequently because I, hadn't found that voice yet. It was there. And I think I knew it was there. And I let myself down. Mm. And you know, the thing of like, Oh, God, if I could just go back and relive college now that I've learned how to like function as a person and actually not care if everybody likes me, and instead say what I think. You didn't feel like you were that way in high school? Oh, definitely not in high school. I mean, in academic settings, of course, I was confident, but in social settings, not at all. No, I'm sure most of my high school life was missed opportunity.
1: Wow, I look back at college as well, like a pit of missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. Like I never showed up. I stopped speaking to people for all the years. And I was in graduate school. I mean, just went on forever. It seemed like, yeah, I remember this day. um I just graduated from grad school. I went back to Miami, where I'm from. My twin sister was in rehab at family therapy, and my sister kind of hounding me about. How LA when I was living there for grad school, how I was missed opportunity. I never left my apartment, mm-hmm. and i had always beaten myself up for it. And it hit me that that had happened all those years of never showing up in these amazing cities. Had I missed it? I had to find a way to stop resenting myself. I could regret those choices, but I could no longer resent myself for it. Absolutely. And again, objectively, I can look back at college. It's frustrating
0: because my goal. I think my primary goal in college, what I said to myself going there was, okay, you've been a nerd. You've been at the top of the academic heap for a while in high school. Like Now it's time for you to learn how to be a person and have a social life. And so part of the reason I did switch my major was because being an English major gave me time to do extracurricular activities. So I'm disappointed because I didn't completely see that goal through to the greatest extent I could have. But at the same time, I was trying, like I have to give myself a break. You know, I did make choices towards that goal. So you can regret, but yeah. You can't kind of hold your nineteen year old self to the standards that you would hold your over 40 self as I am now.
1: God, it's not true. That's so interesting. It's like how you could just beat yourself down. You're like, dude, you're a kid. Yeah. What is that about? This idea that we should understand and be living our best lives at such young ages.
0: Yeah, well, I don't know that we necessarily have that feeling when we're that age, which is probably for the best.
1: Mm.
0: (laughs) I mean, honestly, I think, again, it's it's a sign of how far we've grown that we're able to look back now and see how many mistakes that we made. Mm. But I don't know. Could you have that perspective in that moment? Because you haven't had that
1: failure yet. So you haven't made those mistakes. Well, I felt like I was failing the whole way through. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that was the biggest sadness of all is how aware I was of what I was giving up. Yeah, um, I think that's what was hard. I, and mm-hmm. and maybe it's a bit of the difference maybe between our stories is you're saying that in high school you missed out on social opportunities. Then mm-hmm. so kind of like a lot of people, you know, they go to college and this is going to be the opportunity where they're different than who they were in high school. For me, it's like I had it in high school and I lost it in college. Mm-hmm. So it was always like this desperate, not even attempt. It it was all yeah. Right. Attempt to get back to who I was, so I was always so aware that I had let go of myself.
0: Yeah, it's harder because you felt like you were going backwards, whereas I just didn't know enough to know that I wasn't going very far forward.
1: Mm, <laughs> God, right, different. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that writing has helped you come into awareness over times of your life?
0: Oh, absolutely. It started with improv. Improvisational comedy was kind of like my my roots when I was a kid. How I started doing theater. Um, we had a children's theater that was actually a community theater that was for children, like performed by children. And the way that the man who ran it ran it was that we would pick a story that everybody knew, and everybody would get cast in parts, and then we would create the plays by improvising scene after scene after scene. You know, so improv is how I learned how to tell stories and how to be a performer. You know, that was my first foray into that world. And then, you know, many years later when I came out to Los Angeles, the way that I anchored myself was by uh, taking classes at the Second City Training Center in Los Angeles because I was like, ah, improv, yes. like That's where I'll find people, but it's also where I'll just get my footing. But improv training, it really was the beginning of me as an adult having to have a, a voice because you know one of the major rules of improv is you got to walk out on stage with a point of view.
1: With a point of view.
0: Yeah. Have a point of view. That's what makes a good scene. Be someone mm. with a point of view, have a perspective. It doesn't have to be conflict. It doesn't have to be negative. You know, it's great if it's not, in fact. But don't just walk out on stage and try and let the scene happen to you. Be ready for things. Play, yes, and, but have a point of view. Be a contributor. And then later in the Second City program, when you're starting to take that improv and turning it into sketch comedy, so you're writing, you know, our director said everybody needs to to write because the only way to guarantee you're going to be on stage is to write for yourself. And I was so resistant, but then I started doing it. And I was like, Oh, no, this is the drug. This is me having to put my thought into words. It feels great. I can do it. And it's like I suddenly understood who I was. And so every time I write, whether it's fiction, whether it's comedy or not, whether it's just a, you know, political essay, it's forcing me to stop, think like, what do I want to put out into the world? Who do I want to be? What do I want to say?
1: And how does that translate beyond the page? How does that translate for you outside of being a writer in your normal, I mean, lack of a better word, normal everyday life, everyday interactions outside of, yeah, being a
0: writer on stage? Well, having done those exercises this many times, you know, it definitely has made me just more confident in being able to have exchanges with people because I've done the work, I've done the thinking about whatever it is we're talking about. So that in itself, it builds confidence. But it also, I think it's made me more thoughtful. Mm. You know, it makes me take that moment and go... I should think about what I want to say before I say it, even if I'm just going to say something out loud.
1: So hard. I find it so hard even with this podcast. It's like, I remember really early on this guy was working with me and I don't know if he said it as was giving me actual feedback or if he had just read it, but it was like, maybe pause after someone says something. I don't know if he read that somewhere or realized that I don't stop and come up with a thought. I just react. Right. Like Just like I did now. No thought process of what I'm about to say. Ah, I regret that in post. (laughs) I I still think that that's better than
0: knowing what you want to say before the other person is done talking. Oh, right. Like not even listening to them at all. And it is hard. it's hard to to actually have it take a beat and like change you or impact you in some way and then go, oh, interesting. And I certainly don't do it all the time. Of course, you know, you have those people in your life where you're like this person, it's okay if I just Mm. am a pure ball of reaction. I can be hyperbolic, but I do think when I'm not with the people that I'm most comfortable with in my life, having to put my thoughts onto paper and therefore think about, you know, do I really want to be that sarcastic? Do I really want to be that hyperbolic? Is there a better way to say this? Is there a way to say this that's more positive than negative? It helps me in conversations with the people who you need to be that way with so that you're not kind of like inflaming things Mm. when having serious conversations.
1: I mean, I think some of the greatest advice that you got and for anyone is from that teacher that said, come in with a point of view. Mm-hmm. Some people might think to be a good listener or to be likable is just to echo off of what someone else is saying or just be really agreeable. Just be listening, not really be sharing. And so I think the idea of being with people and taking in what they're saying, but also showing up and understanding that I come in with my own perspective as well, and I'm in front of people to offer that and to Mm -hmm. convey that is so important.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why the very first rule of improv is, quote, yes, and. It's not just yes, it's yes, Mm -hmm. and, as in agree, take it in, but add. Yeah. So what
1: is the yes and dynamic? Like, how does it work on stage? So the idea on stage is, well, the yes
0: part is you don't want to negate anything that someone says. So because with improv, you're starting from scratch and everybody's just making it up. So if someone comes in and says, you know, hey, teacher, you don't turn around and you say, why are you calling me that? I'm your mother. That's denial. And that kills the magic of creating together. So the first thing is accept what they've said. Agree to it. Ah. This is the world we're both in now. But the and is don't just say hello, teacher. Don't just say, hello, students. Say something like, do you have that essay for me today? Yes. You know, like add to it, like build on the scene. Like, so now we know our. you've established our relationship. I'm going to add to it now. What's happening today? What is this moment?
1: Oh, was your heart just beating all the time? I could just imagine being in those moments and not knowing what's coming and how you're going to have to add to it. Yeah. It's so exciting,
0: it actually. It is exciting. Oh my God. I always felt like I was going to be sick. I performed weekly on a house team for more than two years after I finished with the conservatory. And, you know, I felt like I was going to be sick before every show. But that became like a comforting feeling almost because if I didn't have those nerves, I had a bad show because it was like, I'm not present. I knew that I wasn't really there mentally because. I wasn't excited and I wasn't anxious.
1: Mm. Um, It's almost like you were what you were saying earlier about if you think your writing's bad, you know, you know that you're actually a writer. If you don't feel nervous before you go out, you know, you aren't really showing up for a performance.
0: Yes, I mean, fear is healthy. It means that you're present and you're aware of the stakes. Mm. Courage is doing it anyway. And part of why I've always gone back to improv as my root thing is because to me, it is the most terrifying thing in the world to do. And if I can do that, I can do anything. Why is it so terrifying? It kind of depends on the person. It's either improv or the idea of stand-up would be an equivalent to the most terrifying thing in the world. And I always say the difference is, is it scarier for you to rely on yourself or to rely on other people? Mm. Because with improv, for me anyway, you know, I've always been a perfectionist, overachiever. Like I was a writer, so I like things. If I can make a plan and do it, like I'm confident. So improv is scary because I have to let go. And also because you're on stage with other people, they're in control too. Mm. You know, you're all equally kind of building it together. And so you have to trust that they're going to have your back in the same way that you know that you can have theirs. And you also, for me, there's a little bit of fear, of course, letting other people down too. Whereas for some people, stand-up is terrifying because it's comforting to be with other people. Whereas the idea of being alone on the stage is only you to count on.
1: Totally. I totally get it. Like if yeah. you slip up, no one's coming to rescue you. No exactly. one knows what like, the next line was supposed to be.
0: Exactly. I think it's just a personality difference, whether it's strictly an introvert versus an extrovert kind of thing, or if it's a trust issue, I don't know. It, But I think they're both legitimately terrifying. It's just depending on your personal difficulties which one of them is scarier than the other.
1: Has being with someone that is funny, important to you, or do you kind of carry that in a relationship?
0: I do love a person who can make me laugh. I think that I'm instantly more connected to someone if they can make me laugh. So it is important to me that they are funny as well. But especially as a woman, they have to also be able to appreciate my humor. I once was in a relationship and I say it was always the best dynamic I could have hoped for because I thought he was smarter than I was and he thought I was funnier than he was and we were both wrong. <laughs> so I was like, he's smarter than me and he was like, she's funnier than me and in truth, probably we were both wrong. That's
1: so great.
0: <laughs> it was a great dynamic that we both respected both so much in each other.
1: What happened? What happened to that dynamic? You just grew out of it?
0: Well, the dynamic never changed. The relationship ended because there was a significant age difference and he was still very young. It was never going to happen. He was not in a place where he was ready to meet the one. I was further down that road and I was ready. We were in different places in terms of what we thought love was. He still had a lot to learn about that.
1: Totally believe that's what people mean by timing.
0: Yeah. It was bad timing.
1: You said that, like, obviously you knew that there was an age difference. Did you fight that reality thinking that, oh, he could catch up in the beginning? Or did you just enjoy it for what it was?
0: No, 100%. I mean, we were friends for a couple of years before we started dating. So he was even younger when we met. He was always more mature for his age, but, you know, there's some level of maturity that, you know, 23 is never going to be 30 ever. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> what do you say? 23 is never going to be 30? Yeah. I love it. No matter how mature you are. <laughs> I love it.
0: Right. And the thing is, I probably stayed in it longer because I am that person who's like, we can make it work. Like, I don't mind if a path is really difficult because I'm like, it's worth it. And I probably err on the side of trying too hard sometimes when I should recognize that inevitably things are going to fall apart. And his personality more leaned towards ease. He's always like, no, he just wants things to be good and comfortable. In fact, years later, we later had a conversation about um to the industry writing, being a, a writer in, in the film industry, which he had also been trying to do. And he had left for his life in science, getting his
1: PhD. So you guys were really similar, by the way.
0: We were very similar. Yeah. Um, we were both math and science lovers who were also wanted to be comedy writers. But he went the academic path and I kept going down the creative path. And when we talked years and years later, you know, he said, I just don't have it in me to work that hard, like to deal with how hard that path is ultimately, that was the fundamental difference between us. Yeah. You know, and so and when it came down to making that choice in a relationship, we were not on the same page because I was like, I'll wait if I have to. And he was like, no, I'm going to go live my life and have the experiences I need to leave, you know, and it's over. So how did you
1: guys circle back?
0: We ran into each other at a reunion.
1: Oh, yeah. So reunions are worth it. Absolutely. Yeah, they can be hard too,
0: but they're definitely worth it. Always give yourself a chance, right? Always leave the door open.
1: I believe that too. I think everyone should be almost rewarded the opportunity to have that moment where two people circle back and you really see how you feel. I think yeah. that we create a lot of stories in our in our head of if only we could speak again, if yeah. only he would reach out, then I would feel this way. And it's like, would you really if that were to happen? And I think right. it's great to know.
0: And even if it took seven years before we could basically have a conversation with each other again, having that seven years later, having that closure, I think, allowed us to just kind of both be like, okay, at peace. We can enjoy our fond memories of our time together and move on.
1: Yeah, I think it's never too late. You know, some, right. sometimes like it's easy to kind of minimize something. Oh, it's been so long. Right. That other person's not thinking of it or it doesn't have the whole same impact, whatever it is. Yeah. And I just think it's, it's never too late. And I understand that in situations that are really difficult for people, you know, maybe it's never a good option to reconnect, but I would never miss out on an opportunity to pick up a ringing phone of someone that I've been with in my past.
0: Yeah. It absolutely does depend on the circumstances because some things end terribly and some people need to be cut out of your life. Yeah. You know, but a lot of things just end because they end. They end because you're not in the same place, they end because. Timing is bad, or you know, just you want different things out of life, or sometimes they am because of misunderstandings. Most of the time, it's not that, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> how romantic to think just a misunderstanding,
0: right? I mean, I'd say the danger is like you got to get yourself past that point where you're thinking it can still happen, right? Because if you're still thinking that then you're not in a good place probably to try. You're not really in a place of closure. You're still in a place of trying to fix things.
1: Right. I say that if you're leading with hope, your idea of closure is just an opening. Exactly.
0: And sometimes it takes a long time for both of you to be in a good enough place that you can then revisit. You you, you can have interaction with that person and not need any hope.
1: Mm, That's a good, that's a, I was gonna say, that's a good line. (laughs) That made That's a good sentiment. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, like how do you know? Whoever reaches out, you don't know where someone really is at. Yeah. And if it's going to be welcomed. My ex just reached out to me after two years, literally this week. Shocked me. Right. Very interesting in the sense that, you know, I've I've thought about if that day would happen. And all he's doing is sending me music. So it's kind of like (laughs) that's weird, right? Right. It's like uh Okay, now this has happened. Is it going to escalate? Will it? Will it? You know, take them a bit of music, sending me to then say something about, hey, that uh, that was kind of unnecessary. How extreme we got with each other. You know, it just right.
0: Yeah, and I think it's also important to go into situations like that knowing what you want and what you need because I have exes that I still talk to, but there have definitely been situations where it's been like we can have a phone call or we can have an exchange, but I'm not going to open up to this fully. Until I understand what he's coming back for, you know, because (laughs) if he's just trying to recreate an old dynamic that I have, you know, that I have moved on for that I know is not good for me, then that's just going to be no response from me. I'm just going to shut that down, but I'll be hesitant. And then, you know, I've been surprised before by after some exchanges, then hearing, you know, hey, I'm realizing now that I didn't treat you very well and I'm sorry. Mm. And it's like, oh, you know. Wow.
1: You're saying that's not everyone's opening line.
0: No, it's usually not the opening line, but wow. sometimes that's why they're coming back. But I say protect yourself until you recognize if that is why they're coming back. Then you can be like, oh, great. Thank you for saying that. Now we can move forward. But if you feel like you can't move forward without an apology, then don't let them.
1: Right. Zero expectations in my mind. You no, know, I think at this point, if I was surprised by something, that would be you know nice, but I don't think I'm Expecting anything either way, and I don't think it's really a—at uh, least right now—it doesn't feel appropriate to go. What's your motive? Right. I mean, that's the
0: thing is I don't think you have to. I don't think you have to ask someone directly, and I certainly don't think you can say like, "I need an apology from you." I mean, unless they come right at it and say, "Let's be friends." <laughs> but you also can just—you can kind of not yes and. You can just yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> oh, no, I know what you're saying. You know, like he sends me music. Yes, but I'm not. Ending it by sending him my own music. Right. You know? Right. It's like, you're not getting anything from me until
0: we get to a place where I'm ready to do that. And you know that what you need eventually is an apology and he'll need to figure that out or he won't. not
1: even know if I need an apology. You know, I think what I search for is like the person inside. It's like, I think that he's reaching out because there's sadness in his life you know, he just lost his last girlfriend. Maybe he's looking for companionship. I don't know, but it's more of at this point, I realize, like you're saying, like creating an old dynamic, you know, maybe music gets to people back in an old groove. And I'm not feeling that when I hear that music. That's good. It's almost like I'd want to hear like, who have you become in two years? Maybe you don't want to talk about that. You just lost your girlfriend, but who are you now? who is the person that's reaching out to me? I don't care about the music. If I want to listen to music, I'll tune into my Spotify and listen to the playlists I like. Don't sound anything like your playlist anymore. Yeah. I think that it's courageous to reach back out. And I think that it does take people like, you know, like I asked you, like, is the opening line acknowledging what happened? I guess you're right. Probably not the first thing, but eventually I think the most courageous thing of all is to be able to put a flashlight on the last move or something on the last act Mm -hmm. to say like, Hey, that happened. I think in order to really, you know, create a new chapter if you want to have any sort of friendship friendly dynamic you can check in once in a while it's like you have to say something about what happened.
0: There's an essay in my book where I kind of compare different kinds of friendship to properties of metals and the properties of different kinds of friendships and at the end of that it gets into the idea of what are friendships where two people were romantically involved but aren't now right and Mm -hmm. it's like those friendships can absolutely exist and they can be incredibly strong Mm -hmm. um, but it really depends on how it ended and where both people are now because like if the relationship ended before it had run its course for one person You know, some relationships, you're both kind of like, Okay, this isn't working. We're going to go our separate ways. But like usually there's an imbalance in a breakup. So if you try and have a friendship before that imbalance is resolved, it's toxic. You know, it becomes really unstable and poisonous to one person because, you know, it's really difficult to be friends with someone who you're in love with, who only wants friendship from you.
1: Right. No, 100%. And that's why you can't force, you can't talk someone into it. Right. That's usually why even when you try to hold on, someone ends up being really angry about it. But do you feel like there's this feeling like, oh God, they're coming back around because they're no longer in love with me and that's a hard pill to swallow? Absolutely. And the thing is, you have to know yourself. You have to recognize
0: like, if I can't, you know, I have a fairly recent older relationship where that's that was our dynamic for a while is that like for him, it was so easy to break up and you know, he's like, we can just be friends. And I had to keep kind of putting up a block and saying, you know, first I tried it verbally and saying, I'm not ready for this. It's still too much chemistry between us. It's still too full of feeling for me. And when you aren't feeling the same way, it's just a constant, reminder that you don't feel the same way about me. And that's just like constantly being punched in the gut. right? So
1: yeah.
0: asking for distance. And then when he wasn't willing or able, like he still didn't want to hear that, he still wanted to be friends, then just physically removing myself from his life, you know? <laughs> like forcing the distance um, until getting to a place where now it's like, okay, now maybe if I ever run into him again, I might be at a place where those feelings are gone now. So we can just enjoy each other for the people that we are, but...
1: What was the process like of being on the end of someone saying, you know, you're not right for me. So you're left feeling like there's something about me. Maybe that's not enough. And I can't be friends with this person because I'm filled with someone that I saw a lot of potential with. And like you said, that maybe now you could circle back and enjoy each other for the people that you are. What Mm -hmm. did you have to do between that and, and now in order to move past the idea of you two together? A lot of it is distance. A
0: lot of it is time. A lot of it is going back into just focusing on yourself because it's really hard in those moments to not think that there's something wrong with you. At one point, I turned to, I was reading a book about statistics, <laughs> you know, because you do. I also, no, you do. Right. Um, and I was also studying professional poker players because I was writing a screenplay about a gambling ring on college campus. And I didn't know anything about gambling. So I was reading books on it. Um, and that kind of was happening at the same time. And I took inspiration from that because there was a lot of stuff about applying the logical thinking of poker players to our thinking about relationships, right? And they focus just as much, if not more, on the process than the outcome because luck is a thing that exists in the world. And sometimes you can play a hand exactly right and you can read uh, an opponent exactly right. You can do everything right and they have one card that's going to get them victory and they just luck out and get that one card and you still lose. And then other times you can get the luck. You can play terribly, but, you know, come out on top, or you can win because you played well, or you can lose because you played poorly. Those are basically the four different options. Mm -hmm. And I look at kind of relationships that way and try and judge myself on how I performed Mm -hmm. and not so much on the outcome, right? Like, did I handle myself well in this relationship? Did I speak up for what I wanted? Was I respectful of his feelings? But did I not diminish myself? Did I not let him walk on me? (laughs) walk all over me or anything. Did I say what I wanted? And even if I didn't get what I wanted, that's sad, but it's not, it's not a fault on my part. you know. I can be sad about it, but I don't have to be critical of myself.
1: Right. Such a good point. Such so, a good point.
0: Yeah. That kind of thinking really helps me in those moments where you're just like, well, why didn't he want to be with me? And it's like, look, there are things in this life that you can't control. You just got dealt a bad card. He just wanted things that weren't you and that's
1: fine. But it's not you. You don't have to change. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think that's so big. It's like not allowing every lost person to make these big dents in us or allow us to be so malleable that we change so that person wants us or someone just like that wants us again. Right. You know, Everyone okay. should influence you. On the other hand, if you're
0: consistently being broken up with for similar reasons of just like, you're too demanding on my time or you don't ever tell me what you want or like, don't tell me what you expect and then you get mad at me or... You know, if people are constantly a citing similar pattern, or a pattern, you have yeah. to go, okay, I recognize that this is a pattern
1: and maybe I need to look into this now. Time to call my therapist. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, for real. It's like, yeah. I remember getting, uh, when I had an advice a device call, getting a letter about feedback, like how do I handle an excess feedback? And I think that sometimes things can resonate with us and it can really crush us, but something and it can ring true. I think especially if you hear the same thing coming up, you have to investigate it. And then I think with feedback, you know, if if you can discard a lot of it, but if something burns as a bit of truth, Mm -hmm. I think that too should be, you know, you should explore it. Like don't exploit it, but explore it. Be intellectually curious. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a rare situation that people that we're in relationships with, they get a really inside look on us that most people Mm -hmm. never get. Yeah, and because they get that front seat into our lives, then I think that we should actually kind of entertain what they're telling us. Yeah. I mean, it's a
0: balance because people also have their own things that they don't want to confront. And so sometimes they're going to blame things on you that aren't your fault. But they also, as you said, have an insight into your inner workings because they see you at your most private and honest. So... It's a lot like, honestly, getting notes as a writer, like when you get notes back from, oh, from yes. producers and stuff. And it, it takes a long time to get good as an artist at getting feedback, at getting critical feedback, because you have to learn how to take it all in, but also you don't automatically have to change in response to it, right? And so you have to learn how to use your own and trust your own knowledge and instincts in order to go, that's an interesting thought. Let me examine it and then decide whether or not it has worth. Mm. And that then I need to react to it and I need to consider, you know, letting it have an impact. Or if that honestly is just kind of like this person is is reacting to something that's beyond what my goal is or what my thing
1: is. They're not my audience. Maybe. They're not my
0: audience, exactly. Cause you get notes from people who are like, sometimes notes are just well, if I would have written it, this is what I would have done. And it's like, great, but this isn't your
1: this isn't your project.
0: This is my project. And other people are actually giving you notes on how you can better accomplish your goal. And you have to learn to distinguish between those two things.
1: I've gotten into... um, Habit is not the right word, but I've been looking at different podcasts and I'll look at the feedback. Podcasts that have a lot of reviews. And it's interesting to read reviews over and over. And they'll say things like, for someone that's getting paid to have this podcast that supposedly cares about the audience, you're never taking in what all these reviewers are saying. You know, you're not actually invested in feedback. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, like if you apply that to anything in life, that if you keep on kind of making everyone the enemy, or yeah. you break up with someone, you're like, they're now irrelevant, or the people that you date, and just with too much pride, you kind of, you start losing, you start losing people. Right. If you're resistant. Yeah. Right.
0: You got to find a place between being resistant to change and being overly reactive to everything. mmm Right. I mean, that's actually, again, I'm going to nerd out on you for a second. But, you know, that's a principle in statistics. It's an idea of probabilistic thinking because we do have a tendency emotionally to react, overreact to or frequently in statistics called like false positives. But we react to the last thing that just happened, the thing that's burning right in front of you right now of just like, oh, my God, we broke up or something or someone said this to me or this comment, you know, came in and we wait the thing that just happened the most, instead of allowing ourselves to look back and like, kind of, look, is there a pattern? You know, is this an outlier? Yes. Or is this part of a trend that's been happening? And then the other thing we do in dating sometimes is we, you don't want to treat every incident in isolation because you'll either overreact or you'll find a way to basically excuse it away. Mm. Right. So you have to look at things in context so that you can learn from increasing probabilities. As things occur each time, they kind of impact your idea of what is likely and what is not likely, but then a new thing comes in. And it's not the only thing that you know. It's just more information, adjusting your idea of what is most likely and what is less likely. So that way, when a person in our lives is repeating negative behavior over and over again, we can go, oh, okay, this is a trend. It is now more likely that this person, this is who they are. Wow. Wow you know, but
1: the same thing with us. (laughs) I got to get your opinion then. And I don't know if you really have one, but spoke to two females the other night and they were saying that both of them, beautiful women, Mm -hmm. have these guys fall for them. And, you know, talking about a future, leaning in, touching their hair, kissing them at night, and then they ghost them. And there's this trend that all the men in their life ghost them. Mm -hmm. What do you think the problem is? Like, what would you say to someone like that? So it's different men
0: recurring over and over
1: yeah. to
0: them. Yeah. So a trend of men ghosting them. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is definitely then over time, I'd say that that looks like a trend. And so the probability that there's something about them that makes those men ghost is likely. Now, the question is, what is that? Is it that they're intimidating? Because right. that's not a bad thing. <laughs> or is it that they're, uh, that they're sending out some kind of vibe that is some way not what they want? to be putting out into the world, right? Right. You know, is it like, oh, maybe I shouldn't actually talk about my ex-husband on the first date, you know, (laughs) every
1: time. (laughs) Wait, it's so interesting though, because, so you say trend alert, maybe we need to evaluate the woman, right?
0: I just say you need to evaluate because well, the only consistent factor in that trend is the woman. No, but some people would say it's men the thing is it could be men i'm saying it could be that this woman happens to be the kind of woman who men find intimidating yes like i mean in my life i've found that that's a more common occurrence than not and why because there are also studies out there that tell me that you know while men always say they want an intelligent woman that as soon as they are actually face to face with one they don't really want that. They don't really want a woman who challenges them or who in- intimidates them. You know, there are certain ways women are allowed to be more powerful than men. Beauty is one of them. Uh, but there are other ways that the majority of men are not going to be interested in. Humor is one of them. Intelligence is another one. And there are others. So
1: humor is one that they're not going to be interested in.
0: Yeah. If you're funnier than they are, they don't like that. Oh,
1: come on. <laughs> it's just <laughs> that's funny. But go yeah, yeah.
0: I, I, in my experience, when I yeah. guess they want a girl with a sense of humor, what they mean is they want a girl who finds them funny. But again, not all men, but, you know, there are experimentation out there that demonstrates that this is not a freak phenomenon, like it's a thing, <laughs> you know? So what I'm saying is the trend makes it more likely that there is something about the way this woman interacts with the male, mm-hmm. the heterosexual male that is creating this issue, but that doesn't mean it's her fault.
1: Right, right.
0: That could just mean, as my best friend's mother would say, that she's just one of the really shiny apples at the top of the tree, that it's going to take a more, you know, a special kind of man to get to the top and pick that apple.
1: <gasps> I love that. He's going to have to climb <laughs> the trunk. She's the best. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for breaking that down. I like that. You're right. There's also something to be said that there can be something about a woman that they're demonstrating that a man would really have to show up, let's say, and he's not ready to, so he backs off. Exactly. Yeah, I've had that. I
0: mean, I've actually managed to have a couple of conversations with people who have said to my face, you are the kind of person who, if I commit to you, I'm committing. And I'm not ready to commit. You're wife material. You're not girlfriend material. I'm not there in my life. So I'm just not going to go there.
1: Talk about good feedback. Right? <laughs> it's nicer to know, but like, really, isn't it nicer to know that?
0: Right. Yeah. And again, it's like, those are those situations where you're like, this sucks, but okay. I mean, it's not like I can change you and I can't ask you to be a different person.
1: This guy said to me recently, I mean, I've known him for a long time, and he was like, you're just not a one-night stand material. I'm like, what? What yeah. about me? Like, You don't want to fuck? No. Um, but, oh, that means they respect you and they would
0: feel bad if they had sex with you and never called again. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> like, tell me more. What else
1: do you think?
0: You know, I mean, there is that thing of like, very often we choose not to do something at least we're responsible a lot for male emotions, right? Women are, we're responsible for their emotions, for catering to their emotions and for taking care of their emotions, because that's the way we're raised. And similarly, I think for a lot of men, there's a new jerk reaction of putting that, I feel bad when I'm around you because of the way that I behave. But the solution to that is not for me to behave better. It's for you to not be around.
1: Oh, my God, I have to tell you, um... My friend called me the middle of the night last night, and she was expressing to her, her boyfriend that came in from out of town that something that he said, you know, he, he said something like, When you do that, it really bothers me, it really makes me question you. And she said, like, you know, when you say things like that, it really hurts me and it makes me feel like we're not best friends. You know, she just explained it. He got inside the their apartment and he packed everything up and he left. And our conversation, like the question was, what you just said. Instead of acknowledging his behavior, he became the victim of her acknowledging how he made her feel. And so he just left. Mm-hmm. Like,
0: wow. Yeah, and sometimes that's just not everybody is as good at dealing with their emotions. Yeah. Right. And sometimes someone needs to do that and then they need to sit and they need to think for a while and then they'll work it out and then they'll come back. And what they need is time. Right. I mean, I had an ex-boyfriend who, When we would get into a fight, I eventually figured out that the best thing I could do is just not talk to him for like two days, because what would happen is we'd have our argument, we'd say our say, and then he'd go do his thing, which was usually playing video games for a couple of days. And then I'd come home from work like two days later and he'd just go, you were right. And I was like, "All right, cool. <laughs> Moving on." Wow. You know, if I hadn't given him the space to sit and think and realize that what he was mad about was that he was mad at himself, but he didn't want to admit that he was mad at himself. If I had just kind of like wrote t- him about it and wrote him about it, you know, it would have just gotten worse. He never would have. He needed the space and the time to work. You know, through things at his own pace. He was a good person. I knew that he would. and he did and I need that sometimes too right I mean sometimes you have a fight with someone and you just need to go away and you're not ready to apologize right away but you're ready to apologize a week later
1: maybe there's something to be said about saying I'm leaving now but I'll be back
0: yeah it's great if we can get to a point where you know yourself well enough to say I just need some quiet time yeah like this isn't me rejecting you now packing up your things and moving out of the house is a little drastic so who knows if he even knew what he (laughs) Doing in that
1: moment. But I I interviewed someone that's now married, and she said that her now husband, it was the first time that he had lived with a woman. And Mm -hmm. eventually, like, you know, around her, he would start shutting down and withdrawing. And he never had like the vocabulary for why. And internally, he didn't express this, but he was really judging himself. Like, if I love this woman, I should want to be around her all the time. But eventually, over the years, he realized, you know what? He's just actually like an introvert. Mm -hmm. And they've found a way that he needs to like zone out, he needs to be in a different room. it's not him rejecting her. Right. He just needs to re energize because introverts recharge
0: when they're alone.
1: So I think it's like amazing just that example and your example of being able to be someone that lets someone be on their own without sitting in that, analyzing and analyzing it. Because I know that I've been stuck in the anxiety of what does that mean? If he can't talk now, you know, like feeling like you're just going to lose someone in the silence of two days. Yeah. And that's no way to exist,
0: it's just fear. It's fear. And it's hard. It's hard to strike that balance of knowing how to say what you want to say, but also knowing how to not overstep and let someone else also just be themselves and say what they want to say. Not just being all yes or all and, (laughs) both yes and. Also, you know, when I wrote Full Frontal Nerdity, the idea of it was I collected all these particular essays together because I started seeing like this was the through line of my attempts over Several years to try and take the academic side of my life, like things that I studied, the statistics, the math, the physics, you know, the mythology, even all my geekery, comic book loves and stuff. And I've used that as like my own therapy, applying it to my emotions so I could better understand and better take control. Of my emotions. Because coming out into the real world after having been in just, you know, a math major in college or whatever, like being in that academic world, for me, especially coming out to some place like LA, it was very much just like, oh, wow, now I have to learn how to have emotional intelligence. And I didn't yet have the emotional intelligence to kind of deal with it. So this was me pulling from my more traditional intelligence, my book learning, and trying to let it inform my emotional life and you know, it's like adding a little bit of logic to your emotions so that mm. you have a happy balance because you don't want to be entirely logical and cold. You don't want to be entirely looking at the world from a purely quantitative <laughs> you know, perspective where you're just like, well, let's run the numbers and it, this is the likelihood. You want to have feelings. You want to have empathy. You want to be able to consider other people's point of view and let them have their inner life as well but at the same time, you don't want to be ruled by that knee-jerk reaction to the thing that just happened in the moment.
1: Would you rather be 80% emotional and 20% logical or 80% logical and 20% emotional?
0: Oh, wow. That's a really good question.
1: I would probably favor
0: the side of logic, but I don't think that that's realistic. (laughs) I would
1: favor the side of being
0: more logical. I think that sometimes I think of myself as
1: that way, but it's definitely not true. As I've become older, I've begun to think that having logic is also more and more romantic. You know, not just like, just romanticizing everything with your emotions to me just seems kind of flighty in a way. It just seems not based on any real understanding sometimes.
0: Well, I think you don't grow as much because there's not much analysis in it. And There's also, frankly, it's a stressful way to live, you know, just because traditional romance, you know, the romanticizing everything. And it's like melodrama.
1: (laughs) My God. Right. (gasps) You know. Oh, my God. That's so funny. Sometimes people are just people. I coined the word break upward. I'm curious what that word might mean to you. It means two things for me, especially the first thing that comes to
0: mind is that there's always something to be learned from a failure. So this is what I tell my students all the time. You want to be able to, you actually want to make mistakes because that's how we grow. If you never made mistakes, you're not actually learning anything. You're just doing stuff that you were already good at. Wow. So break upward is every breakup is an opportunity to then reflect back on, okay, did I do things right? You know, what did I do that I could have done differently? Am I making bad choices? Like what, you know, and now I'll get better. And then the other thing it makes me think of is Cindy Lauper because she says, <laughs> she actually just said this. I realize why it's at the front of my brain is because she just said it on Project Runway. That, you know, every failure is a launch point for growth and future success. Thank you, Cindy. Yeah, right? I mean, she's the best. And then of course, my other hero is Carrie Fisher. And she said, and I live by this, is take your broken heart and turn it into art. And I think that art can be you. I think the art that you turn it into can be yourself.
1: Oh, yeah. Where can my audience find you?
0: My book is called Full Frontal Nerdity, Lessons in Loving and Living with Your Brain. It's on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, any bookstore can get it for you. If you want to go through an independent bookstore, I say, yay, they can find it and order it. Um, and then I am on Twitter and Instagram at Frontal Nerd. And my website is fullfrontalnerdity.com. And there is a hyphen between the full and the frontal.
1: As opposed to just a space? Because it's grammatically correct. Right. I, I just can imagine this. I mean, I know, I guess you don't do stand-up. It seems like such a stand-up routine, Full Frontal Nerdity. Yeah, well,
0: it, it was my blog for several years.
1: How great. Yeah. It's amazing. When you first started the blog, was this kind of like the end game? Did you see this happening? No, or- not
0: no. at all. I, I was waiting for a screenplay to move forward. It was kind of, in theory, going to go into production. And then when it did, I was going to have to do massive rewrite project. And I didn't want to start anything new that was big, but I wanted to keep my skills sharp. So I thought, well, let me start a blog and see if I could just like write something short once a week. You know, and I'd had a few essays that are written in my journals over the years. So I started by fixing those and then I just kept going. And I was like, well, I'll just see how long I can last, thinking it would be a month or two. And I went every week for more than a year. And then I kept going for over two years.
1: You're good at that challenge. Damn
0: totally surprised myself. I actually kept posting fairly regularly for two years. And then I did have to go back. At that point, the movie wasn't going to go forward. So it was time for me to start something new again, something big again. And then the blog was getting in the way of that. So I stopped blogging. But after I did that, my brain didn't shut down. And I was like, I want to do something with all this work. Like I created this work product. And I thought, I want to share it with the world. So I looked for a way to find a collection. And I Full Frontal Nerdity was the idea of just the theme of many of the blog pieces had academic subjects as a jumping off point and then connecting them to a personal story from my life and like how it has informed my emotional growth. And I thought, okay, cool. Let's make a little handbook. It'll be fun. More than a handbook. Yes. Well, and hopefully it's, I mean, I also wanted to make people laugh mostly at me.
1: That's the best way, right? Oh, absolutely.
0: Never punch down, punch at yourself or up.
1: (laughs) If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea C-H-E-L-S-E-A at breakupward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D dot com. And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupwardcom slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea@breakupward.com. At There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone.
0: I'm gonna go to